We come this morning to the preaching of the Word of God, and our text is found in Acts chapter 18, the first 17 verses. Acts chapter 18. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Divine Comfort in Dire Circumstances. And that will become very obvious as we go through the text this morning. Follow along as I read the word of God to you. Acts 18, beginning with verse 1. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they resisted, And blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I shall go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But. If there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. The population of first century Corinth was about 80,000 people in the urban area, and they believe about 20,000 more lived in the surrounding countryside. Corinth was a very interesting place. It controlled the trade routes between the Peloponnesus and central Greece and across the Isthmus of Corinth, where they had built a four-mile tramway between two ports. This would allow ships to avoid having to sail another 200 miles around the peninsula. The city was about 400 feet above sea level. 
with a massive acropolis that towered another 1,500 feet above the city. The city was enclosed by six miles of walls with grain fields and olive fields and vineyards gracing the massive plains out around the outside of the walls. The Isthmian Games were held there in Corinth, and it had become an athletic and religious center of ancient Greece. Most of the population, according to historians, was made up of sailors and businessmen and government officials. You might say it would be similar to kind of a navy city today. And so, therefore, it was notorious for every imaginable form of hetero and homosexual immorality, of drunken debauchery, gambling, and all other kinds of wickedness that are associated with these evils. The temple of Aphrodite on the Acropolis employed about a thousand priestesses. And these were women primarily who practiced religious and ritual prostitution And there were even many men that practiced the same in that city. In fact, Corinth was so morally corrupt that even the Romans of that day adopted the word Corinthiazomai, which means to Corinthianize. And it literally refers to the practice of whoredom. And it was into this vile, wretched city that a lone man a converted rabbi by the name of Paul walked into to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear Christian, before we look at this text closely, I want you to remember that invading the kingdom of darkness with the glorious light of the gospel is war. It's easy to forget that in our comfortable little Calvary Bible Church bubble here in Middle Tennessee. Like any soldier involved in combat, when an evangelist, a missionary, or anyone for that matter, moves into the kingdom of darkness, there will inevitably be conflict. And that person will experience battle fatigue. They will experience sometimes capture, torture, even death. Because we know, according to the word of God, that the world hates the light. They prefer darkness rather than light. Because their deeds are evil. They hate the truth. And they hate all who proclaim it. The word of God is foolishness to them. Certainly reminding sinners that God is the creator. And he rules over all of his creation. And that he is a holy God that hates sin. And that his law requires holiness. And that he hates anything that violates his law. And telling sinners that we all violate God's law and that we have a sin nature and that there's nothing that we can do to conform to the moral character and desires of God and that all sin must be punishment or must be punished. These types of things are horribly offensive to the world. And to tell people that all other religions other than authentic, genuine, biblical, fundamental New Testament Christianity are false are lies that damns men's souls and that only through repented faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can a man ever be reconciled to a holy God. To say these things is profoundly offensive. And yet it is true. And therefore, 
It provokes people to all manner of violence. Anyone involved in genuine gospel presentations understand this. And sometimes even ministry within the church can resemble war more than worship because sin is a dreadful thing. And certainly the Apostle Paul understood this. He had experienced firsthand what it was to be the persecutor. And now he was the persecuted. It's interesting in 1 Corinthians He later described himself as having been poorly clothed, roughly treated and homeless, and that he was considered by the world to be the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul described the false teachers who had invaded the church and were slandering him, and he discredited them by Reminding the people of all that he had experienced in the warfare of gospel proclamation. And he said, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm insane. I more so and far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews thirty nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And beloved, it was for this reason that the Apostle Paul called the Christian life and ministry war in 2 Corinthians 10. Like soldiers, believers are even called to arms in Ephesians 6, where we are told to put on the full armor of God That you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He even told young Timothy, young Pastor Timothy, and frankly all who minister the gospel to join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God in 2 Timothy 1.8. And he went on to say, to suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. So that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Beloved, every one who is truly serving their commander in chief is going to pay a price because ministry is warfare. It is combat. Beloved, frankly, if your Christian life is one of of luxury and ease, you're probably not a good soldier. You're probably... AWOL, absent without leave, not in the battle. You may even be a coward. You need to examine your life in this regard. Because, beloved, when we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, you must understand that we are denying ourselves, we are renouncing ourselves, we are following Christ, and we literally are becoming slaves that are going to joyfully submit to a loving Lord and Master. He is our king. We serve him as soldiers of the cross. 
And we are called to protect and to proclaim the gospel, the truth, to contend earnestly for the faith. And so, therefore, when we come to Christ, we enlist in this vast army of warrior saints and we assault the kingdom of darkness with a holy violence and with a sacred zeal. This is our calling. And when you enter the battle for the truth, you will quickly discover that there will be two lines of people that get to know you. There will be a long line and a short line. I have experienced this, especially when people say, oh, I know you. And I always wonder which line they're in, the long one or the short one. The short one is that line where the, the people love you and respect you. And the long one that grows longer with every day of ministry are those that see you as a vile, wretched, contemptuous person. This is all part of the battle. The battle will sometimes be more intense than other times. Sometimes you will experience great pain and suffering, but beloved, you will more often feel great joy, even in the midst of the suffering. And always it will be an adventure. And I don't know about you, but I love an adventure. I would hate to live a boring life. But our infinitely wise God knows exactly where to station us. For he has designed each of us for a specific post in the battle. And we have been called to fill it. And when the days of extended combat bring you to your knees with feelings of failure and fatigue. And I'm sure most of you have been there. It's at that time that our commander in chief will come to our rescue with unfailing love and infinite care because he is the God of all comfort. And as we will see in this text this morning, he will preserve and protect us as he did his beloved apostle. And he did this in four magnificent ways. And here we see divine comfort in dire circumstances as the Lord meets Paul's every need through four blessings. Let me give them to you and I'll elaborate upon them. First, through the joy of friendship. Secondly, through the fruit of labor. Thirdly, through the presence of God. And finally, through the sovereignty of God. Now, let me give you a little more of the context. You will recall that Paul's first missionary journey had been extremely difficult. You will remember that everywhere he went, he was met with increasing hostility and opposition. He had been stoned and even left for dead at Lystra. Now, that's enough right there to cause most people to throw in the towel. But he didn't. He continued on by God's grace and strength. And now we're into his second missionary journey. And the same kind of treatment and suffering continues. He has traveled now hundreds of miles. The text has told us that he has spent countless hours teaching and preaching and answering questions, even in hostile crowds. He has spent countless hours strengthening the souls of new converts, of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, according to Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He has had to deal with conflict, even with other brothers and desertion. He has been falsely accused. He has been flogged. He has been thrown into prison. He 
was run out of Philippi. He had to flee from Thessalonica, then Berea. He comes to Athens and he is mocked there and only a few people believe. And now he travels another 50 plus miles by himself to Corinth, one of the most wicked cities in the history of civilization. And again, he's all alone at this point. He knows no one. Silas and Timothy remained in Macedonia to disciple the new believers. And we also understand that he is out of money. He lacks funds. He's having to now make tents. That was a trade that he had learned as a boy. All rabbis had a trade. So too did Paul. And later in 2 Corinthians, he writes to them that he tried not to be a burden to them. And eventually we know that the poor Macedonian believers sent some supplies to meet his needs. And he describes that in 2 Corinthians. As a footnote, historically, I find it interesting, all, all solid, doctrinally sound evangelical ministries, whether they're missions or churches or whatever, have always struggled financially. They always seem to live hand to mouth, month to month, paycheck to paycheck. While all the charlatans rake in the millions, they live in luxury. And this should be no surprise to us because Satan is the god of this world temporarily. And he blesses error in order to suppress truth. And we must not be discouraged, but we must rejoice knowing that he has promised to meet all of our needs. In fact, Paul writes about this later on to the Philippians in Philippians 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But oh, beloved, what exhilaration we experience when suddenly... God proves himself powerful on our behalf just when we think we cannot go on anymore. Then he blesses us. He blesses some needy work in some magnificent way that defies explanation given the meager resources. And why would he do that? To teach us to trust him and to make sure that he gets all of the glory. Can you imagine some of the multi-millionaire church, megachurch pastors stooping to be tent makers so that they could meet their needs today in order to communicate their particular message? Can you imagine now the fatigue of the Apostle Paul? This is where I want to bring you this morning. Imagine what he must have been experiencing. But God is merciful. Merciful, And he never burdens us beyond our ability to bear. And I want you to notice how the Lord ministers to his faithful and weary servant. First of all, with the joy of friendship, beginning in verse one. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a certain Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade. They were tent makers. Oh, dear friends, don't you see the sweet providence of God here arranging this magnificent blessing of fellowship with other believers, people that he had not known before? Let me give you a little history here. A Roman historian named Suetonius wrote about the decree of Emperor Claudius in this regard. 
He said that Claudius required all the Jews to leave Rome. And as the Jews were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished, Claudius banished them from Rome. Now, Crestus, C-H-R-E-T-U-S, is only one letter different from Christus, which would be the Latin for Christ. And we believe that he was referring to the Jewish riots being ignited by their violent hatred of the spread of the gospel of Christ in Rome. But little did Aquila and Priscilla know that God was relocating them for the purpose of enjoying fellowship and ministry with the Apostle Paul. Dear friends, in light of this, may I remind you of something very practical. Often the circumstances of life require us to take a path we would not have chosen on our own. And you can look at this in two ways. You can do as some do and just attribute it to dumb luck, bad luck maybe, or fate. Or you can look at it from the proper biblical perspective and realize that this fork in the road is a result of a sovereign and loving God who ordains all things for our good and his glory. And if that is your particular understanding, as it should be, even then you can respond to his sovereignty in two ways. One way, a sinful way, would be to take your puny little fist and shake it in his face and cry out, this is not fair. Or we can raise up holy hands and we can worship him and we can sing as the psalmist did. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He even guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he, even though I walk in through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. And someday with that attitude, we will look back on that strange fork in the road with tear-filled eyes and we'll be able to say, Oh, Jesus led me all the way. Oh, child of God, there is no greater joy on earth than the joy of following Jesus. Now notice the magnificent match of this dear couple with the Apostle Paul. First of all, they both love the Lord. That in and of itself is an incredible thing. Extremely rare. And then also notice they both are tent makers. You say, my, what a coincidence. <laughs> There's no such thing as coincidence with God. And what a blessed fellowship these three must have enjoyed. Dear friends, may I encourage you here, never, never, never underestimate the power of Christian friendship. And, and never forget that our friends are a gift from God for our joy and for our sanctification. In fact, in Scripture, we read that we as Christian friends comfort one another. We are to edify, exhort, pray, offer mutual love and concern for one another. It's our friends that offer us sympathy and kindness biblically. We see in the Word that our friends rejoice and submit and mutual share and mutually share life with us. 
and that even our friends will delight in us and us with them. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 16, 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. How I thank God for my Christian friends. But the Lord provided divine comfort in dire circumstances in yet a second way, and that is through the fruit of labor. How disheartening it would be to forever plant and never reap a harvest. Wouldn't that be an awful thing? Notice verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. There's a footnote here. No doubt Silas and Timothy now are bringing to Paul some of the much needed financial support from the Macedonians mentioned in 2 Corinthians This would have come from the churches at Philippi and Thessalonica and probably Berea. There's a couple of principles that we need to look at the look at here that we need to apply to our lives. First of all, before we look at the issue of the fruit of labor. First of all, I would say that sometimes tent making is necessary, but beloved, it is never optimal for ministry. Sometimes missionaries, in order to even stay in a country, have to have some kind of career, some kind of tent making, if you will. And some pastors have to do that in certain situations. I recall here in the early years of Calvary Bible Church, I had to do that. And I did so with joy. But my, how what a blessing it was when I was finally freed from the demands of trying to put food on the table in order to truly begin to shepherd a flock. You see, the demands of ministry are far greater than anyone can endure apart from divine intervention to begin with. And the added burden of trying to meet the demands of life only further dilute the effectiveness of a minister. In fact, Paul addressed the exhaustive effort of shepherding in 1 Timothy 5:17. He said, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching And then he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The point that he was making is simply this. If an ox requires physical provision in order for him to perform his duty, how much more so a faithful pastor or minister or missionary or whomever. But a second principle here is that ministry is a team effort. Don't you see that? Silas and Timothy come. Paul needs them. We need each other. None of us have all the gifts. And we need the benefits of the one anothering, some of which I just mentioned a moment ago. But notice what happens as Paul ministers now in the synagogues. Verse 6. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean, for now I shall go to the Gentiles. Now, beloved, go with me for a moment into the body and the mind of the Apostle Paul in Corinth. When now in front of all of these people, you are being humiliated. Wouldn't it be discouraging? Wouldn't you feel like, my goodness, what a total waste of time. 
Where's the fruit of my labor? So, absolving himself from any guilt associated with their rejection of the truth, Paul did something that was just absolutely hideous to the Jews. It was one of the most profound acts of insult that anybody could possibly do, and that would be to take off your garment and to shake it at them. And basically, what he was doing is protesting their rejection of the truth, their blasphemy, And symbolically, he was saying, I don't even want the filthy dust particles of your rejection and blasphemy on my garment. I I, I want nothing to do with you. Now, mind you, this was long before the seeker-sensitive movement gained popularity. Now, let me ask you, don't you think you would want to throw in the towel at this point? Talk about discouraged. But notice what God did here to meet him at his point of need in verse 7. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Isn't that great? The Lord had all of this planned for him. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Now, beloved, the text does not say this, but I believe in my heart that at this point, the beloved apostle wept great buckets of joy when he saw these dear sinners converted. Don't you know that would have been a relief? There would have been been a sense of saying, oh, Lord, finally. Finally, somebody believes. Imagine the exhilaration. Here we have the leader of the synagogue coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith. And many other Corinthians, no doubt Titius Justus, must have believed as well there in verse 7. So can't you imagine the relief and the excitement to finally enjoy the fruit of your labor? Oh, dear friends, the blessing of the harvest And many of you know what it's like to give your life to see sinners come to a saving knowledge of Christ and even to see Christians grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ when so often they reject your efforts. And then finally, to watch God work a mysterious work of grace and snatch these people from the kingdom of darkness. What an exhilarating thing it is. What a glorious thing it is to see some sinner be transformed by the power of the gospel of Christ. It's like at that point, you get your second wind and you get revived and you're ready to go on again into the battle. What an amazing blessing. So we see the joy of friendship and the fruit of labor. But notice, thirdly, how the Lord blessed him through the presence of God. And here we see God revealing himself to Paul. Now, before we look at this, may I encourage you to think about something that sometimes perhaps we tend to forget. And that is that Paul was human. He was afraid. He was scared. He feared for his life. And why not? And I'm sure, even as we, are, we look at the text before us, that there was a part of him that was tempted to give up and stop preaching and teaching altogether. After all, up to this point, it seems as though his labors had been 
somewhat in vain, that he enjoyed very little success. But notice verse 9, as we see the presence of God being revealed to Paul, the text says, And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. I find it interesting here, beloved, the Lord did not say, you know, you need to reconstruct your message so that it will be less offensive. The Lord did not say to him that you need to hire a marketing firm so that they can help you revamp your methods. You need to do some things differently here, Paul. You need to soften up the crowd with some popular Corinthian sounding music. You need to maybe bring in a drama team or some comedy routine or maybe have some celebrity testimonies that will soften up the folks. Or maybe what you need to do is use a first century version of some multimedia presentation. But no, no, he said, I want you to go on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. Can't you imagine Paul thinking to himself, Lord, are, are you telling me that even with all this opposition, even with all of this reject, rejection, even in all these years of labor with very little apparent fruit, that you have been with me and you're going to continue to be with me? Is that what you're telling me? And indeed, the answer is yes. And didn't the Lord say in Matthew 28, 20, before he ascended back into heaven, after his great commission, he said, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Beloved, may I give you another principle here that emerges from this text? And that is this. God measures success in ministry by faithfulness of service. Not by numbers of converts or the size of a ministry. Paul learned this lesson very well. In fact, he describes himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, let a man regard us in this manner as servants. The term servants in the original language was a term used to describe under rowers. They could be translated that way, under rowers. These were the third tier, bottom tier galley slaves that served in Roman ships. It was one of the most hideous forms of slavery in all of Rome. And he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants or as galley slaves, servants of Christ. And he went on to say, and stewards of the mysteries of God. A steward in the original language referred to a slave that was entrusted with his master's household. Consider us as not only galley slaves, but also as stewards that have a sacred trust given to us from our master, and that is the mysteries of God, which would be New Testament truths. And then he went on to say this in verse 2. In this case, moreover, in other words, in light of all this, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Not successful in the eyes of the world, but faithful, trustworthy, dependable, loyal to the master. 
That has that is how the Lord measures success. That is how he measures our ministry. I think of the prophet Jeremiah. Remember, he was called the weeping prophet. And rightfully so. He spent his life in obedience to God's calling, pleading with Judah to repent of their gross idolatry. Things that are just absolutely horrific. The sacrificing of infants and the fires of Moloch and so on. Pleading with them. And they never did. He was charged as a false prophet, put in stocks, thrown into a pit. And yet he was God's choice servant. Repeatedly, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you will see some phrases. One would say, the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then he would go on to describe it. And thus says the Lord, God spoke through this man. And yet his ministry in the eyes of the world would have been a total failure. But not so in the eyes of God. You know, the same could be said of all the prophets, even the apostles, even the Lord himself. Very few responded to the gospel of grace. But what's interesting is a few here and a few there who beget a few here and a few more there begins to exponentially build the kingdom. So he's saying to Paul, don't be afraid, Paul. Don't stop speaking. Don't give up. Don't allow the enemy to silence you. Don't fear man more than me. Trust me, I will protect you. And oh, what comfort it is in the heat of battle to know the Lord of hosts protects us. Amen. Psalm 139, the psalmist reminds us, where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, thou art there. He went on to say, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. Oh, the presence of God. And sometimes we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it from his word as the spirit bears witness of this truth in our heart. What a marvelous blessing it must have been for the Lord to reveal himself to Paul at this low point in his ministry and remind him of his intimate and loving care. But notice what else the Lord said to him. Verse 10, I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Now look at this. For I have many people in this city. And here we have the third form of divine comfort and that is the sovereignty of God. God is going to remind Paul now that he is in control. And I believe that this was the most encouraging of all of the statements. He is reminding him that he alone could not only see into the future, but determine it. This is who you're serving, Paul. And here the doctrine of election is clearly revealed. There were still those who, according to Acts 13, 48, had been appointed to eternal life who were awaiting the preaching of the gospel to believe. What an incredible thought. Paul understood this. We see, for example, in Titus 1.1, he called himself a slave of God whose service was to preach the truth to those whom God had chosen. And in Ephesians 1, we are reminded that it is God 
who is sovereign, we read, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, not ours. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And here again, we are confronted with the fascinating, inscrutable mystery of God's sovereignty in light of man's responsibility. Something that our minds could never harmonize. Because we see here in this text that those who refuse to believe, who resisted and blasphemed, are judged. And yet we also see those who did believe were saved. So, this must have been great encouragement to Paul, and it should be to all of us. Think of it this way, folks. Very practically, God has many people that he has chosen to save in our community, in our families, and they are simply awaiting the proclamation of the gospel. God only knows who they are. He, he didn't tell Paul who they were. So we are to preach as Paul did to all men with equal fervor. And notice Paul's response to the Lord's reminder of his sovereignty and salvation. Notice it was not one of passivity. It was one of activity. He was not some hyper-Calvinist here that said, well, you know what? God is going to save. Everybody's going to save. And he's elected all of them. And so it's no need for us to do anything. We just kind of sit back and watch what God is going to do. No, no, not at all. Notice verse 11. And he settled there a year and six months waiting for God to save them. Is that what it says? No. It says teaching the word of God among them. I find it interesting here as I look at the history of the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. This revelation to Paul seemed to change his tactics from this point on. Because here now he stays at Corinth for a year and a half. Next he's going to stay at Ephesus for about two years. Then he's going to be imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. And then finally in Rome he stays there for several years. May I encourage each of you to remember that God is always at work. Regardless of how difficult or apparently unsuccessful your efforts may seem to be, God is at work. Stay faithful. Now notice what God does next that demonstrates the promise of his sovereign will and the salvation of many there in Corinth. In verse 12, we read, but while Gallio was proconsul to Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul, brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it is a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, began beating him in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio was not concerned about any of these things. This is truly a remarkable scenario with massive implications for the spread of Christianity. Let me explain how so. You see, Rome officially tolerated Judaism as a necessary evil. It was part of their policy to condone Judaism as a religion. 
And they considered that Christianity was merely an offshoot of Judaism, that it was just another sect of Judaism. Well, the Jews saw it very differently, as they should have, because it was very different than Judaism. And they tried to argue their case, but to no avail. And here's what you must understand. Had they won their case, Christianity would, been, would have been viewed as a separate, yet another religion invading the domain of Rome. And since it would not be officially sanctioned, it would be banned completely. But a sovereign God moved upon a heart, the heart of that Roman proconsul of Achaia, and caused him to disregard their claim, to throw it out of court. It would be what we would call a summary judgment, and thus protected the nascent fledgling church from being outlawed. Oh, child of God, don't you see the sovereign hand of God here? What a holy, faithful, loving, personal, sovereign God we serve. Well, may we all take comfort as we engage in the battle for the truth. But dear friends, God knows our weaknesses. He even ordains our afflictions. But we must remember that He brings divine comfort even in times of dire circumstances. And He does so by giving us Christian friends and family who become tangible expressions of His grace in our life. He does so by allowing us to enjoy the fruits of our labors, even if nothing more happens than having us experience internally a confident assurance that we have served him faithfully to the end. And he does so by making his divine presence known to us through the indwelling spirit of God, through the power of his word, along with many other things that he will do that absolutely defies explanation. And he does so by the promises of his sovereign authority over all things, including the scope of our service, as well as those who will be saved. Well, may all of us who know and love Christ be strengthened by these magnificent truths. And I plead with those of you who have yet to believe, who have yet to bow the knee before the cross, that you will cast yourself upon his mercy and that you will confess Him as Savior and Lord before it is too late, and that you will be saved, and that you will join with the rest of the warriors for the truth in this great battle for the kingdom, a battle that has ultimately already been won, merely awaiting for the King to return and to establish Himself as He has promised. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we praise you for these truths and we thank you for giving us a very clear testimony of what you have done in the past and how we rejoice having seen the same types of things in our own lives and ministry. Lord, we praise you for this. And again, I ask as your servant that you would press upon those who do not know you as Savior and who refuse to bow to you as Lord, that you would bring great conviction to their heart. And Lord, would that they repent. Would that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him as Savior and serve Him as Lord. We commit them to you. Thank you for meeting with us. Encourage us and strengthen us and use us for your glory. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.